I cannot tell you everything that we know, but what I can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling. What you will see is an accumulation of facts and disturbing patterns of behavior. The facts in Iraqi's behavior, Iraq's behavior, demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort, to disarm as required by the international community. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. Good afternoon, this is your captain speaking with just a little flight information. We're flying at an altitude of 37,000 feet and our airspeed is 400 miles an hour. A couple little facts here, I'm packing a Colt King Cobra, that's a 357 caliber firearm with a black rubber grip and a 6 inch barrel, capable of piercing body armor at a distance of up to 27 feet. And I can put a hole in human bone and flesh the size of the Grand Canyon, which, by the way, is coming up on the left hand side of the plane. So just sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the plane. No, not you. Not you. Your organization's terrible. Should I tell you? Should I tell you? Oh, you Boy Scout, but you know life. You know life. You know I'm totally off script right now. This is News Dive. I am your host, Shane Sorosi, and I'm solo today. No ho- no co-host today. Let's get right into the week's news. Striketober is in full swing as nearly 100,000 workers authorize work stoppages. Protests at a U.S. embassy in South Africa demands Biden walk the talk on vaccine patent waivers and allow access to the vaccine to the rest of the world. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration announced in its latest monthly report that the United States endured $18 billion weather and climate disasters through the first nine months of 2021, putting this year on pace to be among the worst for such catastrophes. IEA sends clear message to world leaders, stop investing in new oil and gas. It is now beyond a doubt that there is no need for further coal, oil, and gas exploitation if we are to avoid the most dangerous impacts of climate change. Earth protectors and climate campaigners marched on Friday, the final day of action on the People vs. Fossil Fuels mobilization a week-long series of protests in Washington, D.C., which over 600 demonstrators were arrested as they demanded President Joe Biden and Congress act in the face of planetary emergency. Amid corporate Dems' threat to kill a bill that would lower drug prices, a new poll shows 83% of voters said the government should be able to secure lower drug prices for patients who use both Medicare and private health insurance plans. Health experts urge Congress to transform people's lives as millions face persistent financial hardship. Congress simply cannot let this opportunity pass, wrote Dr. Richard Bessard of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation following the organization survey showing that nearly 40% of households 
have struggled to afford basic needs in recent months. Corporate greed is the real culprit behind rising prices, researchers say. The more sway mega corporations have over the economy, the more power they have to gouge customers, squeeze Main Street, and exploit workers. Indefensible. U.S. billionaires became $2.1 trillion richer in the 19 months of pandemic. New analysis shows that just 745 individuals have combined $5 trillion in wealth, most of which will never be taxed, as nations reel from the pain inflicted by COVID-19. Members of Congress demand answers from the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Chief Justice John Roberts in response to a report that hundreds of federal judges have failed to recuse themselves from cases in which they had financial conflicts. Pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson announced its subsidiary created to manage tens of thousands of legal cases alleging the company knew its talc-based products could cause cancers, was filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Like, like members of the Sackler family, USA Gymnastics, and other corporations, Johnson & Johnson is, is attempting to shield its assets and evade liability as it faces lawsuits. Despite outspoken opposition to his nomination, a confirmation vote for Rahm Emanuel to become U.S. Ambassador to Japan has reportedly been scheduled for next week, October 20th. A date that critics of the disgraced former mayor immediately pointed out is the 7th anniversary of police killing of Laquan McDonald, which Emanuel tried to cover up. An Austrian environmental law group filed an official complaint at the International Criminal Court accusing Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro of crimes against humanity in his administration's role in pushing deforestation in the Amazon rainforest. Fossil fuel corporations have plans to expand dirty energy extraction in Africa, proposing more than a trillion dollars worth of new oil, gas, and coal projects over the next three decades. Even though such an undertaking would exacerbate climate chaos and create stranded assets that leave behind unfunded cleanup, shortfalls of government revenue, and overnight job losses. In case you didn't recognize it, that clip we played at the beginning of the show was former Secretary of State Colin Powell giving a speech at the United Nations in 2003 justifying the U.S.'s case to go to war with Iraq. A speech that has since been largely debunked as a bunch of lies pushed by the Bush administration. So while the mainstream media is writing puff pieces about the guy, explaining about how much of an honorable man and what a servant to US empire he has been over his long career, too long of career. So what we're going to do today is look on some of the stuff he's actually did over his career and what some members of the media kind of have only talked, have kind of glanced over. Because what he did during that speech in 2003 just wasn't any, any old mistake that you would make. Like, no, he knowingly lied about the intelligence that the United States had at the time, which furthered the Bush administration's goal to start a war with Iraq. And for that, he should be condemned for the war criminal that he, that he was. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld at the time wanted to go to war with Iraq, even though the 
the administration had no good reason for doing so because he said Iraq, unlike Afghanistan, had a lot of good targets. Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz similarly argued for the invasion because it was doable at one point, saying he didn't care about allies, coalitions, and diplomacy. Dick Cheney was literally the mastermind of global torture apparatus, which is not something your average evil psychopath can say. In 2006, Cheney shot one of his hunting bunnies, buddies in the face, permanently disfiguring and disabling him, an accident for which he appeared to have apparently have never apologized for. These ghouls ex ex exuded what we now call toxic, toxic masculinity, and hating them has always been easy. Bush's Secretary of State, Colin Powell, who died at the age of 84 of complications of COVID-19, had quite a different vibe, exuding quite quiet dignity, deliberative reason, and calm. Yet he was also a war criminal responsible for the deaths of over a million Iraqis. In that way, he was no better than Rumsfeld, Cheney, or Wolfowitz. Powell, who served in the army for 35 years and was national security advisor to Ronald Reagan, chairman to the Joint Chiefs of Staffs under George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush's Secretary of State, was so popular with the people in both parties begged him to run for president for decades. Powell has also been celebrated by liberals because even though he has served in Republican administrations, He's welcomed the presidency of Barack Obama as transformative and opposed Donald Trump, correctly believing him as a dangerous racist. On that day, on February 5th, in front of the UN Security Council, Colin Powell was certain and what he was saying was accurate. Quote, My colleagues, every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources, these are not assertions. What we're, we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence, unquote. Later, rego regarding whether Iraq had reconstituted a nuclear weapons program, he said, quote, there is no doubt in my mind, unquote. That's in public. What about in private? According to Larry Wilkerson, uh, Powell's chief of sa staff, Here's what Powell was thinking at the time. Wilkerson, quote, Powell had walked into my office musing, and he said words of, to the effect of, quote, I wonder how we'll feel if we put a half a million troops in Iraq and march from one end of the country to the other and find nothing, unquote. So basically, Powell, although claiming he was uh, very certain what he was saying was accurate, was talking to his staff behind the scenes saying he wasn't sure if it was true and that we might go in and just find nothing. He thought that at the time, but he was telling something completely different to the public. Powell took evidence of the Iraqis doing what they were supposed to do, like searching for their gigantic ammunition dumps to make sure they weren't accidentally holding onto banned chemical weapons, and doctored it to make it as looked if, if Iraq were hiding banned weapons. The State Department's intelligence staff, called the INR, prepared two memos on the presentation. 
they directly contradicted Powell on the aluminum tubes issue, but also warned him of many of his claims were weak, not credible, or highly questionable. Clearly, Powell's loyalty to Bush extended to be willing to deceive the world, the United Nations, Americans, and the coalition troops about to be sent to kill and die in Iraq. He's never been held accountable for his actions, and he never will be. I would say the only sad part about his death is that it wasn't Dick Cheney or Henry Kissinger or George Bush, for that matter. Much, much worse people. But Powell deserves just as much criticism for his role of taking these monsters' words and and uh, and kind of saying the things that they were saying in a more respectable way. So, moving on. Our next subject today, we're going to talk about the post office. There's been some new developments with the post office. Postmaster Louis DeJoy's 10 years plan has recently started, and I would like to look into that a little bit here today. To start off this segment, I would like to read an article written by David Sirota from the Daily Poster, which is a very good outlet. They do really good reporting. I recommend everyone check them out. The Goodfellas scheme to destroy the post office. If you're confused and overwhelmed by all the political news about the U.S. Postal Service, here's the key thing to know. At its core, this scandal is not new or innovative. It is the standard government, government version of the Goodfellas scheme, deliberately make life impossible for the agency while using it to enrich big campaign donors. And then finally, when there's nothing left, when you can't borrow another buck from the bank or buy another case of booze, you're just... You bust the joint, you light a match. In this case, the lighting the match means Trump, with the help of Senate Democrats, putting the postal, the postal office under the control of Republican operatives, who then eliminated shorting, sorting machines, removed mailboxes, and restricted postal workers from helping Americans vote absentee. Long term, they could bolster the argument that the only way to create a more reliable mail system is to hand it over to the Postal Service's core functions to companies led by donors such as FedEx or UPS that funnel big money to Republicans. Quote, Our financial position is dire. Stemming from substantial declines in mail volume, a broken business model, and a management stri strategy that has not adequately addressed these issues, Said, unquote, said Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, a Trump appointee who was a top GOP fundraiser. The creation of that alleged financial crisis, and whether it is actually even a crisis, is a less well-publicized but critically important story of malevolence. Over the course of years, the villains in this story manufactured the emergency in four ways. One, they fabricated the notion that we should look at the post office as a business. But then, two, they subjected the agency to financial standards no other business operates under. Three, they continued blocking the agency from making the kind of investments that corporations and government retirement systems routinely make. And four, they restrict the agency from expanding its revenue generating operations like, post like postal services in other countries. Let's break down each of these. 
One, the post office as a business. You've heard the assertion a million times. The USPS is supposedly a business and one that is losing money, but few have bothered to question the absurd premise of it. And it is absurd. The post office is not a business. It is public infrastructure so integral important to the nation that it's literally enshrined in the Constitution. As a public utility, it is required to do specific money-losing things that businesses are not required to do, like follow a universal service mandate. That requires it to deliver mail to every remote place in the country at a flat rate. And amazingly, it managed to do this in a self-funded fashion. Indeed, while the Postal Service did qualify for a pandemic loan like many giant companies, it has not yet tapped that line of credit. As the agency's website notes, quote, the Postal Service receives no tax dollars for operating expenses and relies on the sale of postage products and services to fund its operations, unquote. Saying the Postal Service is losing money business is as insane as saying the Department of Education is a business that loses $64 billion a year because that's the annual budget and it spends money on schools. It's as silly as saying the Defense Department is a, con- is a company that loses $738 billion a year because the Pentagon spends that annual op- appropriations on military. You can oppose spending on the defensive on the education department or the pentagon but no one says they are businesses because that's ridiculous it's the same as it's the same thing for the usps and yet over decades politicians have created the idea that we should perceive the agency as a business and judge its success and or failure on corporate terms a rhetorical framework that is used to justify the push to privatize the system two the postal service financial crisis Of course, while the post office as business mantra frames debate over the USPS, lawmakers have also deliberately created a draconian legal architecture that doesn't let the postal service do things that every other business is permitted to do. For example, if you read headlines like this one, you would think that the postal service has been bleeding money, but it hasn't been. Sure, the USPS has its financial issues, but its revenues have actually ticked up over the last decade as the USPS workforce has shrunk. A big chunk of the much-touted losses are actually just a shift of money into different account required by an accounting mandate that no corporation or government entity faces. That mandate came from a 2006 law which requires the Postal Service to move billions of dollars every year into its retiree health care account to prefund 75 years worth of those benefits. This creates a $6.5 billion annual shortfall that could easily be avoided if the Postal Service was permitted to use the same accounting practices as every major corporation and public agency. Not surprisingly, federal, federal records show that the draconian bill that deliberately crippled the post office was lobbied on by the USPS's competitors such as UPS and Pitney Bowers, which together delivered nearly $5 million of campaign cash to federal lawmakers. The Postal Service is not allowed to have any lobbyists represent its interests. Three, the Postal Service is not allowed to invest in any normal way. 
You might think that if lawmakers equating the Postal Service to a business were going to require pre-funding, they would at least permit the agency to embrace a sound investment strategy to generate decent returns for the trust fund, which could speed up the pre-funding, making it less financially painful and reduce the overall shortfall. But you would be wrong. Under ex existing law, the, post the Postal Service is only permitted to invest in Treasury bill, a safe asset to be sure, but the lowest year yield investment. The Postal Service is not allowed to have a modern investment portfolio. It is pro prohibited from putting assets into a kind of safe index fund that corporations, pension systems, and endowments, and other industrialized nations Postal Service invest in. The USPS cannot even invest in the index funds the federal government's own thrift saving plans uses. This is akin to having your long-term savings in cash stocked under your bed or in a saving account rather invested in something simple as a Vanguard fund, a move that any financial advisor would tell you forfeits huge money. How huge for an agency as big as the Postal Service? The USPS General Inspector asked a financial firm to investigate how exactly that question three years ago and it's found many billions of dollars. The 2017 report from Sengal Consulting found that if the Postal Service invested retirees' money into a standard 60-40 bond stock fund, it would gener generate 53% higher returns than the current system over the next 20 years under a middle-range set of market conditions. That's huge money. To be sure, the Postal Service rightly acknowledges that a sound investment strategy alone is not enough to fix the financial issues, and any new investment strategy would have to avoid the risky investments that some public pensions have gotten themselves into. But that can't even be explored until Congress stops blocking existing legislation allowing the Postal Service to modernize its investment strategy. Until then, USPS is being forced to leave billions of dollars of potential revenue on the table. Four, the Postal Service is not even allowed to expand. If the Postal Service was really a business, then it could do what other businesses do and try to grow its way out of its problem. In fact, former Postmaster General John Potter told Congress in 2010, other National Postal Service complement their traditional offerings with banking, cell phone, logistics, and other services to generate the income necessary to offset the cost of the universal service obligation, costs that cannot be met solely by the price of posted. But USPS is not allowed to do that. The 2006 legislation did not only create the pre-funding mandate, it also went out of its way to block Postal Service from offering new services, which might have not, not only generated new USPS revenues, but also benefited customers with lower cost. Why did the legislation do this? Because stakeholder concerns about competition with the private sector, according to the Governmental Accountability Office. In other words, the USPS's potential corporate competitors who deliver big campaign donations to lawmakers didn't want the competition, and so the competition was statutorily blocked. Wall Street was one of the industries that benefited from the provision because it helped uh, complicate any move by the Postal Service to allow low-cost banking services as it once did in the 20th century. And guess what? Citigroup, and the bank, American Bankers Association lobbied on the bill, according to federal records. A few years ago, the ABA made its motive clear, telling federal lawmakers that its members remained very concerned about allowing the post, offer, 
post office to offer non-postal products, including banking services, because that may present con significant competitive issues for private sector entities. As a result, the result is a USPS that is set up to fail. As the Congressional Reach Service put it in 2016, on one hand, USPS must sell enough postal products to maintain its self-sufficiency and meet other statutory requirements, such as the retiree health benefit pre-funding obligation. On the other hand, USPS generally cannot expand its operations beyond the scope of postal product. Catch-22. This is a deliberate attack. Clearly, the attack on the USPS is real. The situation is not merely a random storm of unfortunate events. It's also a set of deliberate policy choices that end up weakening a critical public utility. That weakness serves a purpose. Over the long haul, it sets the conditions for powerful corporations to, to push the privatized mail service and open up new market share. That would boost corporate profits, but it would put yet another crucial piece of public infrastructure under corporate control. In that scenario, vote-by-mail systems would be operated by the very corporations seeking specific electoral outcomes. Universal service guarantees could be eliminated. Prices could fluctuate and pretend on how much delivery oligopolies want to charge. In short, we could be ending centuries of success and destroying an institution that the founders knew was critical to our country. Now that you have that background, I'm going to play a video from the uh, YouTube channel, More Perfect Union. And this is a video explaining Postmaster DeJoy's 10-year plan to destroy the post office. Louis DeJoy's 10-year plan for the Postal Service starts taking effect on Friday, October 1st. The price of the mail has already risen under DeJoy, and soon the mail will permanently slow down. DeJoy calls his 10-year plan delivering for America, but it will do the exact opposite, slowing many first-class mail deliveries down taking their standard from three to five days. Slower ground transportation will also now be prioritized over air transportation. These new service standards won't improve the Postal Service. They will make it harder for people all across the country to receive their medications, their bills, their paychecks, and more. Small businesses nationwide rely on first-class mail to run their organizations, and the reliability and promptness of the USPS is crucial to their survival. When the mail is slower, people use it less, and the Postal Service loses even more money, making it a target for privatization. These new standards are coming to pass despite massive public opposition. U.S. mail! Not for sale! Who is the George? Must go! Who is the George? Must go! The whole post office! The people's post office! More than 130,000 public comments were filed with the Federal Register in protest, virtually all opposed to any slowdown of the mail and 21 attorneys general filed their opposition with the Postal Regulatory Commission, the PRC. Even the PRC itself criticized the first-class mail slowdowns in an unprecedented critique of postal policy. So how did we get here? During the Trump administration, the Office of Management and Budget recommended that the Postal Service be taken over by for-profit companies. According to that plan, a private postal service would be more inclined to innovate and improve services and would have access to private capital markets to fund operational improvements. Months later, Donald Trump appointed Louis DeJoy as Postmaster General. The Postal Service is a joke. DeJoy wasted no time in getting to work. On-time delivery rates for the mail started plummeting. 
The whole nation was affected. But in October 2020, mail delay and delivery complaints were almost 50% higher in communities made up of more than 45% Black, Indigenous, or other people of color. In the lead-up to the 2020 election, when vote-by-mail was being used at unprecedented rates, DeJoy directed the removal and dismantling of mail sorting machines that were critical to USPS processing capacity across the country. DeJoy plowed ahead with slowing down the mail without conducting appropriate impact analysis or consulting with relevant stakeholders on which communities and which services would be the most harmed. There are even leaked internal documents that revealed DeJoy knew that these changes would slow down the mail. His investments and stock holdings, even well into his tenure as Postmaster General, present serious conflicts of interest that are likely influencing his decisions. He's invested more than $300,000 in Brookfield Asset Management, where Postal Board Chairman and staunch DeJoy ally Ron Bloom is a managing partner. In a classic bromance, Ron Bloom has in turn invested in postal contractor XBO Logistics, Louis DeJoy's former company, where he still has financial interests, and where USPS recently signed a $120 million contract. DeJoy's plan is just the beginning of their march to privatize the U.S. mail. Detractors like DeJoy and his crew argue that the agency is bleeding money and isn't profitable. But that reality was engineered by Congress, which has made it impossible for USPS to introduce new products and services since a 2006 law. Now the people overseeing the agency don't even believe in its mission of serving everyone. Profit shouldn't be the goal of the United States Postal Service. The USPS's goal should be to fulfill its public service mandate. We can do this by making sure the mail is delivered on time to everyone and giving the USPS the people and the technology to expand its services to be a true community hub for the 21st century. Since this country's founding, the U.S. mail has served everyone with reliable and efficient mail and other services. The good-paying careers that the agency provides are a critical part of the nation's economy. The Postal Service is a pathway to the middle class for black Americans, for veterans, and women. This makes for a stronger and fairer economy. The Post Office is a national treasure that needs to stay. President Biden has the power to remake the Postal Governing Board and remove DeJoy. He must act soon to name two new governors who understand that the Postal Service is essential and must be strengthened as a beloved public institution. And, of course, Joe Biden has been very, very slow to act on the post office. There, there, are, some, there are still vacancies open on the USPS's Board of Governors and you need these vacancies to be filled because with the members currently on the board they don't currently have the vote to fire DeJoy because Democrat Ron Bloom is, uh, is a DeJoy ally and he won't fire him. So the only way to get DeJoy out is you need to add more people to the board, which you can because there are open seats. So the fact that Biden hasn't addressed this yet is disgraceful. And the fact that this is allowed to happen is very not good. And also mentioned in the video, she talked about how DeJoy has various conflicts of interests that go against the United States Post Office. Over the past seven years, the United States Postal Service has reportedly paid approximately 
$286 million to XPO Logistics, which is Louis DeJoy's former employer, and has ramped up its business with the company since DeJoy's appointment as the Postmaster General. After his appointment, DeJoy continued to hold financial interest in XPO, totaling between 30 and $70 million. DeJoy has also held significant amount of stock in Amazon, a major USPS competitor. A report that DeJoy had perfect hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of publicly traded bonds from Brookfield Asset Management, where USPS Board of Governor Chair Ron Bloom is a partner and manager, fueled further calls for DeJoy's termination. In addition to the alleged conflicts of interest, in connection to XPO Logistics and Brookfield's asset management crew in advocating DeJoy's ouster notes that DeJoy and his wife, a former U.S. ambassador to Canada, got their jobs after contributing $2 million to Trump's campaign coffers. DeJoy is the first person in decades to lead the USPS without any previous experience in the agency. DeJoy is under federal investigation for allegedly operating a scheme where he asked his employees of his former company to make co- campaign contributions, then arranged for bonus payments to reimburse those same employees. And DeJoy appeared apparently violated federal crime laws by commanding USPS to make policy changes at the agency that would de- uh, depress or delay voting by mail in the 2020 election. Just just terrible guy. He is destroying the post office from the inside. This is an agency that every single American relies on. Uh, the elderly rely on it for medication. Small businesses rely on it for cheap rates. Here's another video from More Perfect Union of a USPS worker explaining what's at stake if the post office is privatized. Right now they want to convince the American people, oh the postal service is crappy and all that. But as soon as you privatize the postal service, what you're sending right now for for uh, 50 something cents, that it'll cost you three and four dollars. The same crappy postal service that no matter where you live, if you order something, it comes right to your front door delivered by this. This postal service that makes sure the elderly get their medicine and the small business owner can compete. This postal service that uh, employs more veterans than any other uh, business in the United States. This crappy postal service that we must protect because if we don't, they'll put ourselves in a position to miss it when it's gone. And he is completely correct because... The, a big reason why the post office is able to ship things across the country for such a, a cheap, flat rate is because they don't run, they're not, a, they're not a business, so they don't need to run on a profit. So they're able to operate at cost, where is if you privatize it, you, you, you ship off its responsibilities to private companies, they're going to jack up the price because they want to make uh they want to make a profit where the USPS doesn't need to make a profit. So like he said, the the it might cost you like I, I don't know the exact price of process. I forget what he said. It was like 50 50 cents, 75 cents for a stamp. And it's going to go to like 3 4 dollars because they because the businesses 
will want that margin and they will want that profit so they can line their own pockets because at that point it's a corporation its only interest is to serve wall street where the post office has an actual mandated by law to serve the public a corporation isn't mandated to serve the public so if you when you privatize things like the post office the public service erodes and with that we'll move on to our final segment of the show Less than a year after entering office with vows to bring a new humanitarian approach to the nation's immigration system, the Biden administration is carrying out what could be the largest mass expulsion of would-be asylum seekers in recent American history. Virtually none of those being removed from the country, nearly all of whom are black, have received their day in court. Nearly all of the expelled including families and children, will be flown to Haiti, a country the administration itself characterized as a state teetering on the brink of collapse. In the, in the 80s, the Reagan administration pioneered the interdiction of migrants at sea through a, a sweeping crackdown on Haitian asylum seekers. Haitians were again used as guinea pigs for a new get-tough immigration enforcement measures under the administration of President George H.W. Bush, which launched a policy of interdictions and forced returns without hearings, much like the Biden administration is pursuing today. Images of lawmen on horseback chasing black people seeking a new life through the Texas brush conjured other visions of the nation's past. In one video captured by an Al Jazeera field crew, a mounted border patrol agent is seen telling Haitian migrants, quote, this is why your country shit because you use your women for this before directing his rearing horse towards a group of children. On the campaign trail, then-presidential candidate Joe Biden often tied his vision of immigration to U.S. history, arguing that President Donald Trump has waged an unrelenting assault on our values and our history as a nation of immigrants. It's wrong, and it stops when Joe Biden is elected president, the Biden team said in, its, in launching its immigration platform. Just four months ago, the Department of Homeland Security de designated Haiti for temporary protected status. A rare designation applies to immigrants in the United States who are temporarily unable to safely return to their home country because of the conditions of extreme political upheaval, conflict, or natural disasters. The U.S. government thus asserted in no uncertain terms that Haiti was not a safe place Temporary protective status was extended and expanded for Haitians just five weeks ago. Yet, in the last 24 hours since this article has been written, 320 Haitians were placed back on, back on planes by the Biden administration and expelled back to Haiti. The Biden administration is expelling thousands of people to a country officially recognized as unsafe for reparation. It is a deportation operation of scale and speed not seen in decades and is given and gives the lie to any notion that Joe Biden's border regime is kinder than that of former Donald Trump's. And 
Joe Biden's immigration policy is not much different than Donald Trump's. He is still defending Title 42 in court. The Biden administration, who said that they were going to run a more humane immigration system, are are defending... The Biden administration lawyers are defending Trump's immigration policy in U.S. courts. And they're defending specifically Title 42, which which allows the administration to expel immigrants on the basis of the pandemic. And it's not safe to uh, allow to allow people in during the pandemic. Which is completely ridiculous because the conditions that you're sending them back to are more unsafe than the conditions you would if you let them in to the United States in the first place. To explain what Title 42 is and how it's still being used, here's a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. AILA and advocates were heartened by a federal district court decision in a case involving the government's use of a public health law known as Title 42 to expel families with children under 18. The court found that the use of Title 42, at least in this manner, to expel individuals who are seeking asylum is likely illegal, and that the evidence presented by the plaintiffs showed that they face real threats of violence and persecution upon expulsion. It ordered the administration to refrain from expelling families and children. Ayla called on the administration to accept the court's decision and not appeal, and has consistently called for this administration to end Title 42 altogether. Unfortunately, the administration did file an appeal, and last night, a D.C. Circuit Court ruled that the original order prohibiting them from expelling children, families with children, would be stayed meaning that the administration is free to continue expelling these families. Much like the images that we've seen over the last few weeks of expulsion flights to Haiti carrying families with young children. A next hearing is not set on this case until January 22. In addition to developments around Title 42, AILA is also closely following the re-implementation of the so-called Migrant Protection Protocols Program or remain in Mexico. The administration has been ordered to comply with the federal court injunction to resume MPP processing. In a statement released earlier this week, we did learn that the Department of Homeland Security is intending to issue a new termination memo. Ayla welcomes this step and was heartened to hear it. However, we also learned that they are taking internal steps to resume the implementation of MPP. AILA will continue to closely monitor developments in MPP and the Title 42 litigation. And we will continue to advocate with this administration that they must pivot away from the use of such policies and instead embrace a more welcoming and humane approach to the southern border. And during that video, she mentions the unsafe conditions that migrants are being sent back to. And just to expand upon that, A joint human rights report published based on more than 110 in-person interviews and an electronic survey of more than 1,200 asylum seekers in the Mexican state of Baja, California, documented at least 
492 cases of attacks or kidnappings targeting asylum seekers expelled under a disputed public health law known as Title 42 since Joe Biden's January inauguration. According to interviews and data obtained by Amnesty, the U.S. and Mexico have engaged in systematic violation of those laws in their treatment of unaccompanied Mexican children, 95% of whom were returned to Mexico over a six-month period, often without screening to determine whether they faced threats in their home country. So the Biden administration, are they're just scooping up these immigrants and they're just flying them south without uh, without considering the dangers of the conditions they're sending them back to. They're not even giving them a trial to appeal for asylum, which it's completely legal under U.S. and international law to uh, to seek asylum in this country. And both the Donald Trump administration and now the Joe Biden administration are blatantly violating. Here's Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas on Meet the Press defending Title 42. Uh, let me start with the decision to send 2,000 Haitian migrants back to Haiti in this current circumstances. Um, in hindsight, was that a mistake? No, it wasn't, uh, Chuck. Uh, that is the exercise of a public health imperative. We're in the midst of a pandemic. The Centers for Disease Control has a Title 42 authority that we exercise to protect the migrants themselves, to protect the local communities, our personnel, and the American public. The pandemic is not behind us. Title 42 is a public health policy, not an immigration policy. But these folks didn't come from Haiti. They came from some other places in South America. Should they have been sent somewhere else? So we are working with other countries, um, Chile, Brazil, uh, other countries in South America and the region. Uh, these are Haitian nationals. Some of them don't have documents from the countries from which they just left. So uh, they are subject to removal. They are subject to Title 42 expulsion, and we work with the countries that receive them. In fact, in Haiti specifically, uh, we've contributed uh, about $5.5 million to ensure their safe and humane resettlement there. Right, but they haven't, some of these folks haven't been there in over five years. That well, is indeed I mean, uh, the so case, and, they, they, and they're Haitian nationals, and they're subject um, right. to removal to a country that is um, able to receive them. Let me ask you about Title 42. Is that a, an authority you still want to have? That is a, uh, an authority that the Centers for Disease Control has determined to still be necessary given where we are in the arc of the pandemic. And the most hilarious part of that clip was probably the part where he says, we're doing it for their own protection. Like, no you're not. You're sending them back to a place that's much more dangerous. And the United States is one of the few countries that actually has broad access to vaccines. So instead of bringing them in and just vaccinating them, we're sending them back to Haiti where they don't have many vaccines. And now I'm going to play a couple clips from Al Jazeera that have documented some of these asylum seekers' experiences with the U.S.'s cruel immigration system. They're being ushered back into their own country, but it isn't a happy homecoming. 
Just a few days ago, these Guatemalans were in the United States. Now they've been turned back. First, US authorities flew them deep into southern Mexico to try and prevent them crossing the border again. Then Mexican authorities bust them further back into El Carmen, a Guatemala border village. There's a mixture of confusion and disappointment here. They sent us back here without signing deportation papers, without asking us anything, not even the address where we were going. They just had us four days in the cooler, in cold rooms. And then they sent us back to Guatemala just like that. It's all happening under a US health provision called Title 42, being used in the pandemic to turn back migrants without allowing them to ask for asylum. Now they've been dropped here, even though they don't really know where here is. I don't really know this part of the border. Helen told us her family was from the Petén department. Afterwards, I found out that was a 15-hour drive away. I asked her at the time how she'd get home. I don't know because I've got no money. They took us by surprise, just saying, go now. The U.S. is struggling with high border numbers and overcrowding in its facilities. It's told people not to come. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. But that's being drowned in a sea of misinformation, in Facebook forums, and from people smugglers who profit from those desperate for a better life. They charged Wilbur more than $10,000 to take him north. He was betting on reaching the States to pay that money back. Now he has to do it in a country where he can't find work. In Guatemala, there's no money. So we go north, trying for a better future for our children. We don't have money to get them to school. Now we're coming back with a big debt and without money or work. He has his son, little Wilbur, with him. Wilbur's two other siblings are still stateside with their mother. We left him trying to find a way back to his home six hours away. It's the end of the flights for this evening, at least. But for the people on the other side of that bridge back in Guatemala, it's just going to be the start of working out how to get home. And in many of their cases, how are they going to start paying off uh, the amount of money that they borrowed to pay people smugglers to get them to the United States? So for them, this is far from the end. John Holman, Al Jazeera, Talisman. I ride through the Turquoise River. Deep in the jungle in Panama shows how thousands are fleeing poverty in South America. Boats filled mostly with Haitians, Cubans, and Venezuelan migrants follow one after the other, heading to the United States. They arrive in Colombia and cross to Panama through the Darien Gap. They arrive thirsty, hungry, and walk with difficulty. Rafael Rovero from Venezuela traveled with his wife and three children. He's still recovering from the journey. Whatever I can say is small compared to what we saw. In one there was a dead child and in another tent too. People drowning in the river and left hanging on trees. I counted at least eight, but I'm sure there were more. This is the worst I've ever lived. His wife, Flor Garcia, says she struggled climbing the mountains and the cliffs in the jungle. It's horrible because I felt I couldn't anymore. Before I arrived here, I felt weak. We hadn't eaten in days. My feet were injured and I was thinking of my children. 
I thought my baby was not going to make it. Flor says they were assaulted. A woman from her group was raped and she had to cover herself in mud to protect herself. NGOs say rape has become the norm. Most of the people we have spoken to that arrive to this camp are desperate. Most of them have lost all their belongings. They have no clothes for their children. This group is from Venezuela. They say the only thing left are their expired passports. They all arrive at the indigenous village of Bajo Chiquito, where there is not enough food and water to help them recover from the trip. Vijuas has just arrived. She's from Haiti. Her four-month-old baby is dehydrated and has a fever. I left Chile because we don't have papers. The government doesn't want to give us papers, so we are going to Mexico. Around 16% of those here are children. They survived the journey, but UNICEF says most of them are traumatized. Children are very young and they come with serious health issues, like everybody else because of the trip. You see diarrhea, vomit, but also they're affected psychologically because they go through traumatic experiences. In some cases, they get lost from their parents, so it's very difficult. Countries in the region are struggling to cope with the thousands of migrants heading towards North America. They're trying to implement quotas, but this is unlikely to work for now. In spite of the risks, migrants continue to arrive. This is only a part of the journey, but most of them say it has left wounds that will mark them for life. Teresa Bo, Al Jazeera, Darien, Panama. So yeah, very awful awful conditions that these people go through just to get to the U.S. border only to be sent back. And you might ask yourself, why, why would people do take such a dangerous trip? Well, they're desperate. You have these Latin American countries who that have been devastated by decades and decades of U.S. imperialism intervention that have destabilized these countries to where they're now run by drug cartels, corrupt politicians, and there's just political instability is just rampant throughout the region. And the fact that the United States is largely responsible for a lot of this destabilization to then shut our borders off from people trying to escape the problems that we had a hand in is is just adding another layer of cruelty on top of the cruelty that we've already discussed here today and before i sign off i would just like to address some of the the right-wing arguments that against immigration that you hear a lot because you know we live in a, a very right-wing country that I mean we have a democratic president who has very anti-immigrant policies right now so to but the main uh, arguments against immigration is that like immigrants come and they commit crimes or they come and they take jobs away from Americans, which, if you look at the actual research and data uh, behind it, that turns out to be not the case. 
peer-reviewed, largely overlooked research shows that undocumented immigrants in Texas likely aren't part of a crime wave. In fact, they're much less likely to be arrested for serious crimes than people born in the United States. Between 2012 and 2018, U.S.-born people were twice as likely as undocumented to be arrested for violent crimes in Texas and two and a half times as likely to be arrested for drug crimes. And then if you look at the research further, you see second generation immigrants, their crime rates more are closely resemble a uh, someone who, whose uh, family has been in the uh, country for generations because the second the second generation, they're more assimilated into American society. They're, uh, they're, if they're born here, then they're an American citizen who are, aren't not as at risk of being deported. Because if you, if you made these dangerous journeys to America, you're, you're not, you're not going to risk getting deported by committing a crime. Because committing a crime is a quick way to be deported. So that's why you'll see a lot less crime rate from immigrants. But if you listen to a lot of the right-wing commentators and even Donald Trump himself, they talk about how, oh, they're not sending their best, but even though overall they commit less crime than America. And then to address the immigration taking jobs, Research shows the average American wage rises due to immigration, both short-term and long-term. The research also shows that new immigration uh, does severely impact wages of prior immigrants, suggesting lack of substitutability with Native Americans, like nat naturally uh, natural-born citizens. Overall, vast majority of American workers' wages increase from immigration. While some policymakers have blamed immigration for slowing of U.S. wage growth since the 1970s, most academic research finds little long-run effect on American wages. The available evidence suggests that immigration leads to more innovation, a better educated workforce, greater, greater occupational special better matching of skills with jobs, and higher overall economic productivity. Immigration also has a net positive effect on combined federal, state, and local budgets. Economists generally agree that the effects on immigration on the U.S. economically are broadly positive. So the United States has a long history of immigration and the available, most of the available data shows that the immigration helps the country. So I don't see why we can't have an immigration system that makes it easier for people to seek asylum. Because it's not like we don't have a space. America is a huge place. There's so much open space in this country. Like, it's not like we don't have the size. We can always make more jobs. And and having more people means you have a larger labor force, which means you can increase uh, productivity. You, you can 
you can to to increase productivity to compensate for the larger population. So when you take away the idea that the immigrants are committing crimes and they're somehow bad for the economy, when you when you take those arguments away, it really kind of shows how how racist the the right is when it comes to their views on immigration because there is really not really good reasons for being as cruel to the uh, immigrants as this country has been over over decades and as climate change continues to escalate it's only going to cause the immigration problem to increase because as the planet warms the first places that are going to become uninhabitable is going to be around the equator around central and south america so when that happens where are people going to go they're going to go north what's north the united states so so we we need to uh start working on having a more humane immigration system that doesn't cruelly send people who are looking for safety and opportunity back to the destabilized areas where they come from where they're likely to face assault or kidnapping or whatever dangers that they might find in the, in these countries so with that this has been News Dive. Rate us five stars. Uh, uh, write a review. Write a very nice review. And with that, Colin Powell's a piece of shit. Save the post office. And immigration is good. Goodbye.